All right, guys, good to see you. Please turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. And as you well know, we uh, for the last few weeks have been studying 2 Peter chapter 2 here at Calvary on Wednesday nights. And if you've been with us, you uh, know that Peter has been really exposing and denouncing false teachers. He saw them as a cancer in the body of Christ. These men who infiltrated the churches, posing as men of God, but then sought to destroy these churches and those in the churches through their damning heresies, is what Peter called it. He goes on to describe their carnality uh, and coming judgment, really, uh, using some very graphic language and imagery. Let's back it up to verse 12, where Peter said, But these, like natural beasts, made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand, and will utterly perish in their own corruption, and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who counted pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. Here's where we pick it up tonight, verse 14. Having eyes full of adultery, and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. Let's just stop there. Peter is saying that false teachers infiltrate churches for two main reasons, to satisfy their own sexual lusts, and secondly, to capture converts for their perverted cause. He says they can't cease from sin. Why is that? Well, obviously because they're in bondage to their fallen nature, and only Jesus can set us free. That goes for all of us uh, in this room who are believers. At one time, we were also in bondage to our flesh, and there was no way we could be free of that. It took the power of God to transform us after he saved us. But these people are not redeemed. That's the whole idea. And uh, they don't act like redeemed people. They put on a good show, a good facade, but actually they're deceivers and wolves and um, they can't cease from sin because they're not born again. He said they entice unstable souls. The Greek is they prey upon the spiritually weak. They prey upon the spiritually weak. One pastor put it this way, said they keep their eyes open, looking for loose women whom they can entice into sin. Paul warned about similar apostates who, and he's quoting now 2 Timothy 3, verse 6, who creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away by various lusts. More than one quote-unquote minister has used religion as a cloak to cover his own lusts. Some women in particular are vulnerable in counseling sessions, so it's not just all loose women. It's sometimes vulnerable women they prey on, uh, going through difficult times, maybe lost their husband and so on. Uh, the, these women go to these uh, men of God, so-called, um, and uh, during the counseling session, they actually take advantage and um, take advantage of them eventually sexually. Peter talks about these kind of people. They've always been around in the church. Uh, the devil has always infiltrated the church with uh, his so-called ministers. Paul talked about these in Second Corinthians 11. Um, they come across as ministers of God, but they're really, really working for the devil. They're ministers of Satan. Peter goes on to say in verse 14 that they have eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, enticing 
unstable souls. Enticing is an interesting word. One pastor said it's the Greek word delazo, literally means to catch with bait, to catch with bait. And the apostles' word picture is unmistakable, this pastor said. The false teachers, like fishermen using a lure, tricked their victims to believe their deceptions under the guise of authority of authentic ministry, they targeted the unsuspecting, the spiritually immature, the undiscerning or unbelieving. Peter knew the only sure defense against their tactics, listen, was a strong foundation in God's word, end quote. Well, that's true. So what Satan has done in the modern church is he's moved churches away from teaching the truth of God's word. Uh, He's moved them away from sound doctrine. Of course, uh, it wouldn't happen if people that go to churches, uh, there, if there wasn't a market for these phonies uh, who tickle ears, tell people what they want to hear, a mark of the end times, Paul tells us, and, uh, and they get people to turn away from the truth, from sound doctrine, and turn to fairy tales and so on. And, uh, but it's a sign of the times. The only sure defense against spiritual error is always the truth of God. It always has been. And churches that teach God's word faithfully are churches that are strong and are not going to be deceived. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free from error is the idea. There's nothing more powerful than truth to combat false doctrine. Now, Peter goes on to give another warning about false teachers in the church. First, they're often menacing sexual predators. And secondly, they're most often greedy for money. Last part of verse 14. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. Of course, the word covetous means having a strong desire for something or someone. Sometimes it's translated lust uh, in the scriptures. And of course, coveting is uh, is a sin that tends to fly under Uh, most people's moral radar, not realizing that coveting something, lusting after someone or something is really the root of almost all other sins. It leads to adultery. It leads to stealing, even murder and things like that. It's such an egregious sin that it made God's top 10 list. And of course, the 10th commandment out of Exodus 20, verse 17, God said, you shall not covet your neighbor's house or your neighbor, you shall not cover your neighbor's wife or his male servant, uh, nor his female servant, nor his ox, his donkey, his Mercedes, you know, anything that belongs to your neighbor, you're not supposed to lust after it. Now, Peter further intensifies this idea when he said that these individuals, listen, have trained their hearts in covetous practices. The Greek word for trained is the word we get the English word gymnasium from an athletic term meaning exercise or discipline. Commentator and historian William Barclay said something I thought was pretty phenomenal. He really nails it. He said, and I quote, the picture is a terrible one. The word which is used for trained is the word which is used for an athlete exercising and training himself for the games. These people have actually trained and equipped and taught their minds and hearts to concentrate on nothing but the forbidden desire. They have deliberately fought with conscience until they have destroyed it. They have deliberately wrestled with God until they have thrown God out of their life. They have deliberately struggled with their uh, their finer feelings until they have strangled them 
They have deliberately trained themselves to concentrate on the forbidden things. Their lives have been a dreadful battle to destroy virtue and to train themselves in the techniques of sin. End quote. Wow. Uh, that really is saying uh, a lot. I think he's right on the money. It's amazing. You see these people, it's almost like they revel in sin. They celebrate it. Uh, they train themselves to sin in ways that go beyond even what normal people, I think, uh, would do with regard to some of these sins. Peter calls them accursed children, meaning that they are children of the devil who were bound for hell. It's interesting that uh, Jesus called Judas a son of hell, son of perdition. Uh, he said in John chapter 8 that the Pharisees, uh, their father was the devil. We know that Paul said of the Antichrist that he is going to be the son of perdition as well. There are people, in fact, you can check out 1 John 3. He even talks about what distinguishes the children of God from the children of the devil. You can check it out on your own. You say that to the average person today and they get very upset because you're judging people. I'm not judging anybody. I'm telling you what God has said. We're all born children of the devil uh, in the cursed family of Adam. And it's only when we give our hearts to Christ that we are transferred from one family to another. The family of Adam has a blood curse on it and is doomed to spend eternity in hell. But the family of Jesus Christ, the last Adam, you give your heart to him, you become a, a member of the family of God. And uh, no longer is the wrath of God abiding on you, but now the blessings of God. Eternal life, a place in heaven reserved for you that won't ever fade away or disappear. Uh, it's yours because you are in Christ and so on. But there are those who are just simply flat out children of the devil. Now, some manifest that more than others. That's true. But anyone apart from Christ is a child of the devil doomed to spend eternity in hell. Now, the Bible says God doesn't want that to happen. He desires for all men and women to repent and come to the knowledge of the truth. He loves us all. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. John tells us in his first epistle, chapter 2, Jesus Christ didn't just die for the believers. He died for the sins of the whole world. God wants all people to be saved. They could be. Jesus' blood was enough to, to uh, pay for all sins, but you have to receive it. You have to accept it, okay? Verse 15, he goes on. He says, they have for, forsaken the right way and gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. I'm so glad that God uses dumb donkeys. Um, I wouldn't be here if he didn't, but I appreciate that. Uh, but actually, that was a literal thing, right? And you can read about this in Numbers chapter 22 to 24. I'm not going to really get into the story. Balaam was a prophet of God. But if you read the story, he was a greedy man, okay? He was a greedy man. And one day the king of Moab sent uh, emissaries to him to try to get him to come and curse the children of Israel because Moab, the king of Moab knew there's no way his armies were going to be victorious against these people. They were God's people. And uh, he knew that there was just, I mean, they had conquered every other nation they had gone up against. And so uh, the king of Moab decided to try to hire Balaam to come and curse uh, God's people. And you can read the story, but the, the gist of it was that, uh, that the, the final thing that happened was that uh, Balaam took money from the king of Moab 
but told him, look, there's nothing I can say to curse these people. They're God's people. There's no spell or incantation that's going to work against them. Didn't Isaiah say that? That's the heritage of those who are God's people, that no spell incantation is going to work against us, right? Because we're children of God. But, but Balaam was clever. He said, but I'll tell you what you can do, that God will curse them himself. You send your prettiest young gals into the camp of the Israelis and get them flirting with the young Jewish men. And when they get all worked up, tell them, look, how would you like to see how we worship our gods, which was done usually through sexual orgies. And so the young men of Israel fell into idolatry. And it was the uh, doctrine of Balaam. It worked very well. God wound up cursing his own people. And, but the idea is that there are those out there that are in it for the bucks. Peter tells us, don't be in it for uh, filthy lucre's sake, you know, mammon. You know, if you're going to be in ministry, make sure God's called you and that it's not just because you want to make good money or have a, uh, a uh, well-respected position in the community. There are people out there, and Peter's talking about them, who claim to represent God, but it is all about the money. I, I see them on TV. I mean, it, you watch some of these guys, it's all about the money. One of these well-known televangelists, I was watching him a couple months ago when uh, he said he wanted to buy, I'm just going to name him Jesse DePlantis. What's the point of beating around the bush? You, all right? Uh, you know, who am I protecting, right? So... So good old Jesse, you know, got three jets, but not one of them could go around the world or could fly halfway around the world without fueling up. He wanted to have a jet that would make it halfway around. He could go anywhere in the world on a single tank of gas. And so he put the word out and his followers ponied up, I don't know, $65 million for this jet. Now he's got four of them, right? And I'm thinking to myself, I wouldn't want to be in your shoes on the Day of Judgment. Why can't you fly commercial? Why, why can't you fly coach? You know? You're supposed to be a servant of the living God, not a celebrity of the living God. Anyway, don't get me going on that. But uh, a, lot, a lot of the Word of Faith teachers, I'm sorry, are nothing but money-hungry charlatans who, who come across as men of God, shepherds of God's people. But you can read Ezekiel 34, where God talked about them back in the Old Testament, how they're, they're all about fleecing the sheep, not feeding the sheep. And uh, you can read, he, the Lord really nails these guys in some very strong ways too. But verse 17, Peter said, These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now at this point, Jude uh, what he had to say is parallels some of the things not Peter is saying in this chapter, but Jude kind of uh, elaborates a little more. Okay, so in Jude, uh, only one chapter, so Jude verses 12 and 13, he said that these false teachers are spots in your love feasts, and your, uh, you know, your, they had uh, love feasts every week in the churches. Uh, we would call them like potlucks, you know, and they would all eat together and so on. But uh, Jude said, these are spots in your love feast, cancerous spots, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, they are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees. See, clouds without water, well, in, in a, when you live in a desert climate or a very arid climate where they get very little rainfall, whenever you see clouds in the sky, it always brought hope 
that those clouds contained water. And of course, when the clouds passed by and there was no rain, it was, it was a, a letdown because there was at least a promise that maybe water was, rain was coming, right? And, and these false teachers are like that. They come on the scene and they cause people to have hope because often their message is very positive, right? And so people put their faith in these guys. But not only can they not help those that listen to them, they can't even help themselves. That's the point. Their lives are a, a wreck. A they put on a good facade. You do a little digging, you'll find out that their personal lives are often a train wreck. They can't even help themselves, let alone anyone else. But I, I, I just want to key in. There, clouds without water, Jude says, carried about by, uh, by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Paraphrased, ain't good. Not, not good, all right? I like what Warren Worsby keyed in on a couple of those phrases by Jude. He talked about raging waves of the sea. Worsby said, Jude may have in mind Isaiah 57, verse 20, uh, but the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose water cast up mire and dirt. There is no rest for the wicked, says the Lord. Worsby says, all that the great swelling words of the apostates can produce is foam and flotsam. Flotsam is the cargo floating on top of the water after a shipwreck. The true teachers of the word bring up treasures of the deep, but the false teachers produce only refuse. And what they boast about, they really ought to be ashamed of. And he says, see Philippians 3, verse 19. Next, Jude calls them wandering stars. Worsby said, Jude was not referring to fixed stars, planets, or comets, because they have a definite, uh, they have definite positions in orbits. He was referring to meteors, falling stars that suddenly appear and then vanish into the darkness, never to be seen again. Our Lord is compared to a star in Revelation 2:28, and Christians are to shine like the stars in the dark world. Philippians 2:15. Fixed stars can be depended on to guide the traveler through the darkness, but wandering stars can only lead him astray. God has reserved chains of darkness for the rebellious angels, Jude verse 6 tells us, and he has reserved the blackness of darkness forever for apostate teachers. Beware of following a falling star or a false teacher. It will lead you into eternal blackness, end quote. Jesus said, beware of false prophets, Matthew 7. They're like spiritual traffic cops waving people down the broad way that leads to destruction. You'll know them by their fruit. There's only one narrow way that leads to life, and that's through Jesus and the cross, right? Uh, but, but, you know, the Broadway's tolerance. People today love tolerance. They love inclusion. Uh, they love, they're not opposed to God per se, uh, as long as that God doesn't make any demands of their lives or restrict them in any way. If you can give me a, a God that's very tolerant of the way I want to live, I'll, I'll follow him. But... If you start giving me a God that makes demands on my, lives and tell, my life and tells me I can't do certain things, then I don't want that until people write off Christianity, uh, even though there are Christian churches that promote the Broadway. Uh, when you go around in your travels, you'll see churches with the rainbow outside and on the marquee. Uh, we love everyone. All are welcome. Well, all are welcome here, and we love everyone too. But we love them enough to tell them the truth not just let them go on thinking that they're okay because they're doing what they want and that's okay with God. 
Verse 18, for when they speak great, I love this, when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. And again, Jude echoes Peter's sentiment, but elaborates in Jude first, uh, verse 16, he, he says, These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told us that there would be mockers in the last time, the last days, who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. Listen. These are sensual persons who cause divisions not having the spirit. Well, the, you know, the, the devil comes to, to divide and conquer. That, that's how he works, right? He comes to divide and conquer. And this is the uh, way his uh, false apostles, false prophets work. They come into a church and uh, very positive at first, and then they start sowing their false doctrine. And, of course, you have some that love the word, and reject that but you have others who are uh, gullible who are not grounded in the word and they embrace it because this guy uh, is so positive and he comes across so definitively that everyone thinks he knows what he's talking about and maybe the church is growing and say well you know dead churches can't grow right well check out your local cemetery i mean you know uh, cemeteries grow okay dead churches can grow too all right and uh, but that's how satan works now God does hate division. Jesus Christ died to bring us uh, together. Jesus prayed on the night before the cross in John 17. He said, Father, I pray that you would make them one even as you and I are one, Lord. Make them one by your truth. So the word of God has got to be the basis for our unity. Uh, some churches hold up unity uh, as if that in itself is the most important thing. It isn't. Unity is wonderful if uh, it is unity uh, that is uh, brought about by uh, the uh, adherence to the word of God. Uh, make them one according to your truth. Your word is truth, Jesus said. That was his prayer uh, the night before going to the cross, that there would be unity in his church because Jesus knew that unity based on the word of God would make us strong and would keep us from error, would not allow the devil to get in and begin to conquer and divide and tear churches apart. God absolutely hates those who sow discord among brethren. You can check out the six things God hates. That's the last one on the list, Proverbs chapter 6, verse 19. Uh, in the book of uh, Epistle of Titus, uh, he said, uh, Reject a divisive person after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Those who sow discord among brethren are showing themselves to not be that they are not being led by the Holy Spirit and possibly are not even saved because they're being used by the devil to divide. Paul said in Romans 16, I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ but their own belly and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. And that would be a reference to the hearts of those who are not grounded in the word, who have not taken the time to grow. And so their faith is very simple still. And uh, some of these folks have been saved for many years, but 
They're too lazy to study the word. They give it lip service and so on. And so they are susceptible to deception. But, but keying in on this idea of great swelling words of emptiness, um, author William MacDonald, he comments on Peter's statement here. And he said, uh, you know, Peter said they speak great swelling words of emptiness, or as Knox translates it, they use fine phrases that have no meaning. <laughs> fine phrases that have no meaning. This is an accurate description of the words of many liberal preachers and, fa and false cultists. They are accompanied orators, holding audiences spellbound by their grandiose rhetoric. Their erudite vocabulary attracts undiscerning people. Uh, what their sermons lack in content, they make up for in, a, in a, a dogmatic, forceful presentation. But when they have finished, they have said nothing, end quote. Let me give to you a, um, a quote by a false teacher named Leonard Sweet, who spoke a few years back at uh, the Catalyst Conference that met in Atlanta. Listen. This he was invited to this conference. It was attended by thousands of evangelical leaders across this nation. Thousands of evangelical leaders across this nation came to hear, in part, Leonard Sweet. Leonard Sweet is an emerging church author and speaker who is really a New Ager dressed in sheep's clothing. Listen to what he said. I just pulled a few sentences uh, from his speech. Listen to this. This is what he said to thousands of leaders. And why, it may be some did, I don't know. I didn't read it that anyone did uh, when he started spouting off this garbage, why you didn't have uh, men of God stand up, walk out, and before they walked out, yelled at the stage heretic and then left instead of staying and applauding this goofball. But listen to what he said. The first of these five untheorized observations is that new light, and he's talking about uh, those that you know are Christ, call them new light, that new light embodiment means to be in connection and in formation with other Christians. Deeper feeling and higher relating go together. The church is fundamentally one being, one person, a calm union whose cells are connected to one another within the information network called the Christ consciousness. New lights offer up themselves as the cosminions of a mind of Christ consciousness. As a cosminion incarnating the cells of a new body, new lights will function as transitional vessels through which transforming energy can renew the divine image in the world, moving postmodern from one state of embodiment to another. Now, if that isn't the epitome of great swelling words of emptiness, I don't know what is. But they're out there, all right? When Peter says the allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error, verse 18, he could have in mind new Christians who these false teachers target because being new Christians, they haven't had time to get grounded in the word, and therefore they are still easy prey for false doctrine. Or, and I kind of think this second one is more to the point, or Peter could have in mind those who hadn't yet made a real commitment to Jesus Christ, but had, listen, moved away from the old friends and the sinful habits or behaviors that they were walking in, and now were attending church, hanging out with Christians, and the idea is they're checking out Christ 
because they're they're wanting to to see if they're going to want to make a commitment to him now churches across america at any given time have a number of these uh, uh people in the congregation they're not saved but they are open uh, they're seekers and they come into church and they they want to hear for themselves what christianity is all about and they're checking out you guys because they want to see if it's made a difference in your life because if it hasn't why should i bother with it they think okay but they're checking out the churches they're not saved yet but uh, they are hanging out they've, they've moved away from old friends and sinful behavior and now they're hanging out with christians checking out jesus and so on but they're not saved yet these would fall into the category of John the Baptist disciples, but not Jesus Christ disciples. And I'm taking that from Acts 19. When Paul came to Ephesus years after Pentecost, I think it was like 30 years after Pentecost, he's in Ephesus, and he runs into a group of disciples. Now, he assumes they're Christians, disciples of Christ. But after he spends a little time with them, he must have discerned something because he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit since you believed? Now, he's talking about the baptism with the Holy Spirit, the, the empowering for service. All Christians have the Holy Spirit in them. But not all Christians have the Holy Spirit upon them, which Jesus said would happen. Uh, you know, Pentecost is when it started, uh, or was first poured out the Spirit. And, but this would be the empowering for service that they needed to go into all the world and do the Great Commission, right? So Paul's talking to these people. I don't know what he saw. Maybe he discerned something, obviously. Maybe it was a lack of joy or... Uh, excitement. So at one point, did, did, did you guys receive the, the, the Holy Spirit since you believed? Have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit? And they said, well, we haven't heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Now he knew something was wrong. Well, what baptism were you baptized into? Well, the baptism of John. Okay. John baptized, you know, his was a baptism of repentance, telling people to get your hearts ready, Messiah is coming. But apparently, after they heard that initial message, these disciples... And, and got their hearts, you know, where they had repented and were, were now open. Something happened. They Maybe they didn't live in the area, uh, were visiting uh, that area of the world, uh, you know. And, uh, and, and when John was preaching, and then he went back to maybe Ephesus. You know, in those days, people didn't travel like they do today. You might make a pilgrimage to Israel, and that would be the only time in your whole life, right? So they come to Israel, maybe for one of the major feasts. John's up there preaching, and, 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 and they listen, and it resonates. And so they were baptized by John into this baptism of repentance. Then they went home. Jesus came, lived, died. Thirty years has passed. They don't even know that Jesus has come. So Paul shares the gospel with them. They receive Christ, are baptized by Paul in water, and then the Holy Spirit comes upon them. My point is, you have people that have gone from the world to a halfway position where their hearts are open, they've repented of sins in the sense that they don't want to live this way anymore, tired of the old life, right? Drugs and sex and all this other stuff. And so now they're open to the gospel. We would say today they would come to church and they hear a message and they realize, I got to get my life right with God. And they kind of prepare their heart, but they haven't gone all the way into making a commitment with Christ and being saved. They're in that kind of a halfway point, right? This is the difference between, listen to me, reformation and regeneration and that's what i want to spend the rest of our time tonight on because this is what peter now addresses in his epistle here this is the difference between reformation and regeneration now before we look at verses 20 to 22 which really embodies what i'm talking about first of all he says in verse 19 
while they promised them liberty, these false teachers. They themselves are the slave of corruption. You can't promise a person who's a slave of the devil freedom when you yourself are a slave of the devil. And that's what these false teachers are. A lot of people look at them and go, wow, they're so godly. But if you knew what their lives were like behind the scenes, you'd see a lot of things that would indicate, no, these people are not only not saved, they're bad news. But Peter said in verse 19, while they promised them liberty, their followers, they, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. I think the NLT second edition makes it a little simpler. simpler. Uh, it says they promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of sin and corruption. For you are a slave to whatever controls you. And that's the idea. And, and the bottom line is, you want to know if somebody is really born again, is there freedom? Now, not perfect freedom. I mean, the Christians still battle with different things, cigarettes and uh, maybe some alcohol things. But their life is moving from bondage to greater and greater victory, okay? Where these false teachers, that's not what characterizes their life. And that's what Peter is basically saying. But look, I want to key in on verses 20 to 22 right now. So let's read it. For if after they have escaped the pollutions. Now, remember the context. We're talking about people who claim to represent God and preach to people about freedom. And these people start to respond to the message. And, and it looks like freedom is beginning to take hold. But it, it's short-lived. And that's what he's saying. For if they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow or a pig having washed to her wallowing in the mire. Now, before we look at what that really means, turn to Matthew chapter 12. Because in Matthew chapter 12, and of course Jesus said this before Peter wrote his epistle. Who knows if Peter didn't even have in mind uh, what Jesus says here in Matthew 12. But he says something in verses 43, 43 to 45 that, that very much parallel what Peter says here in chapter 2, verses 20 to 22. So Matthew 12, verse 43, Jesus said, When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, this evil spirit, he, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. Stop there. Now, this passage troubles people because it's difficult to understand exactly what the point the Lord is making here, what he's talking about. Of course, guys, and remember this for everything you do when you study the Word, seeing the passage in its context, always look at the context. Well, that will greatly help us to understand the context is the conclusion of a confrontation that Jesus had with the scribes and Pharisees. Back up to verse 22. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind, and mute. 
And he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? In other words, could this be the Messiah? Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Jesus responded by rebutting the logic that Satan would do things that would undermine and ultimately destroy his own kingdom. That doesn't make sense. I'm setting a person free from demons, and I'm working for the devil? Who imprisoned them to these wicked spirits in the first place? The devil doesn't set people free once he's enslaved them to demonic entities and so on. So that was ridiculous, and they should have known better. They were fishing because they didn't want to just accept him as Messiah. Uh, and so on. But from there he went on to teach that a good tree is known by the good fruit it produces, while a bad tree is known by the bad fruit it produces. He said in that passage, the same is true with the human heart. And since the scribes and Pharisees only spoke lies and untruths, it proved their hearts were bad, unredeemed, and that they were children of the devil and not of God. Now in verses 43 to 45, He seems to be expanding on that teaching with a section that is dealing with the danger of reformation that stops short of regeneration. Let me explain. Even though outwardly, or excuse me, even though inwardly, the scribes and Pharisees were unredeemed, uh, they had unregenerated hearts, outwardly their lives seemed righteous and holy, at least to the average person. In fact, in Matthew 23, Jesus says to them that they were like whitewashed tombs. And of course, in those days, you'd have pilgrims that came to Jerusalem for the one of the three major feasts, uh, Passover in the spring, Pentecost, early summer, and then uh, Tabernacles in the fall, three major feasts of Israel. And pilgrims from all over the known world would come to celebrate those feasts if they would, uh, not knowing the area, if in their travels they stumbled over a tomb, well, they'd be defiled. And so they couldn't keep the Passover or one of the other feasts, right? So as a courtesy to these pilgrims, the townspeople, Jewish people, would whitewash the tomb so that you could see from a long ways away. And they they all knew. If you saw something that was whitewashed like that, uh, that was a tomb. Stay away from it, right? And it presented a great metaphor of what Jesus was talking about here, that, look, you Pharisees and scribes, outwardly you look all holy and righteous, But inwardly, like a tomb, you're full of dead men's bones, hypocrisy, defilement, etc. So he nails them because outwardly they had the facade of righteousness, but God knew the heart, right? But what the Lord is acknowledging here, and this is the essence of what we want to talk about for the remainder of our time, what the Lord is acknowledging here is that often a person can reform or clean up their life by going to church, hanging out with Christians, and staying away from the things of the world, these things can, you know, drive out of their lives in some ways the whatever evil spirits, demons, uh, that were hanging on them, <laughs> working in them to influence them to live in rebellion against God. You know, um, if we could only see the spirit world, you would see that, you know, demons are often all over people, especially unbelievers. Okay, but even Christians uh, at times. I'm convinced that uh, we can have a demon or two hanging around and trying to influence us, no doubt. 
Uh, of course, uh, you draw close to God, he'll draw close to you. The devil will flee, right? It's a constant spiritual battle. You have to constantly be on the, where you're charging ahead, right? Uh, not just hanging out and just whatever happens kind of a thing, but you got to be marching forward. Otherwise, you start you know, sliding backwards. But um, th- th- there are evil spirits that, that uh, influence people all the time, unbelievers especially, and influence them to live in rebellion against God, against his word, and so on. Just like Paul the Apostle said in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, that evil company can corrupt moral living. By the same token, good company can drive out immoral living. However, the danger, guys, of religious reformation that stops short of true regeneration. When I say regeneration, I'm talking about salvation, okay? The danger of religious reformation, kind of a surface cleansing, like the Pharisees, scribes, which stops short of true regeneration is that it gives people a false sense that they have a relationship with God. Why? Because they are going to church. And they're hanging around Christians. And they're staying away from old sins like alcohol, drugs, pornography, and so on. Their life is changing. But they have to go all the way. They have to go all the way into a full-on commitment to Jesus Christ. Right now, they're in between. They're in between the world and salvation. Now, we were all on that road at one time. The problem is some people stop short of entering into a full commitment to Christ. And they think they have it because why? I'm, my life has really changed since I started going to church. I don't drink anymore. I'm not taking drugs. I'm not looking at pornography. Oh, this is great. I'm, I'm hanging out with Christians and we're having a great time. Be careful. It could simply be reformation. I like what J. Vernon McGee said. He said, and I quote, In other words, reformation is no good. My friend, you can quit doing many things, but that won't make you a Christian. If everyone in the world would quit sinning right now, there wouldn't be any more Christians in the next minute or in the next day because quitting sin doesn't make a Christian. Reformation is not what we need, end quote. No, what a person needs is genuine repentance. The Greek word for repent is metanoia, two words, actually literally means to have a change of mind. I'm going in a, in a direction that's leading away from God. And all of a sudden, it really comes to me, maybe because sin has beat me up so much, uh, that happens. I get to a point where I'm like, I'm on the wrong road, man. This, this is not. My life is going to end early if I don't get things straightened out, if I don't make some changes. And so at that point, maybe a Christian uh, witnesses to them or they're, they're remembering you know, something that uh, a Christian told them. Maybe it was even their mom or dad when they were growing up. But all of a sudden, the light goes on. They have a change of mind. I'm not going in the right direction. And they accept Christ, so they repent, accept Christ. The Spirit moves in. They are regenerated. They're born again. And now by the power of God, they begin to actually make physically a change of direction, right? That's what people need. But Jesus goes on to warn here in Matthew 12 what happens to the person who doesn't. Go all the way with God. Verse 43 again. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. The key word there is empty. In other words, guys, you can you know, sweep the house of your heart is the idea. 
You can sweep it clean from some sins through reformation, but a clean house, listen, a clean heart that is empty, that's not good. Again, that's reformation. You need regeneration. Again, J. Vernon McGee said, and I quote, the hardest people in the world to reach for Christ are unsaved church members because they think they are all right. They have a relationship with God. They have undergone self-reformation. Their lives have been swept clean and put in order by religion. And they are like a vacant house. And all the evil spirits have to do is move back in. The devil owns them. And they don't recognize this fact. End quote. And then Warren Worsby adds, It is not enough to clean house. We must also invite in the right tenant. The Pharisees were proud of their clean houses, quote unquote, but their hearts were empty. Mere religion or reformation will not save. There must be regeneration, the receiving of Christ into the heart, end quote. And again, guys, here's the danger of someone cleaning up their life a little through religion, but stopping short of inviting Jesus to come in and live in their heart, which brings this vital dynamic relationship. See, that's the problem with religion. That's why uh, I hate religion. Jesus hated religion, by the way. He, he, he saw that religion often gave people a false sense of righteousness, that they were right with God. Why? Because they went to church or, in their case, temple. They uh, brought sacrifices. They, they observed holy days and feast days. All that religion gave the Jewish people the sense that they were right with God because they went through all the motions of these outward religious things. And Jesus was always coming against religion and preaching a relationship. I've said it before. Let me say it again. God does not want religion from you. He wants a relationship with you. That only comes by accepting Jesus Christ into your heart. If Jesus, through the indwelling Holy Spirit, doesn't own a heart, if he isn't living in that heart, well, that person's heart is susceptible to being filled with other spirits, evil spirits. You see, the real problem with Reformation, guys, is that the thrill and novelty of going to church and hanging out with Christian people will eventually wear off. And when that happens, the unregenerate person goes back to the old life because, listen, that's all they know. They, they, they're not a new creation in Christ, which means they're not born again. They don't have the nature of God within them. All they have is the old nature, which can be kind of subdued by going to church, hanging out with Christians. People of God are very encouraging people. Their, their, their lives have been transformed. They have wonderful testimonies of how God delivered them from alcohol and drugs and all kinds of, uh, of, of things. I've talked to people all the time in our church. I love to, I ask, what's your testimony? I love to hear testimonies because I love to hear people say, oh, man, before I knew Christ, I was into drugs. I was an alcoholic. Man, I, I couldn't keep a relationship, blah, blah, blah. You know, it just was a disaster. And then somebody brought me to church or, or one person told me, I, I, you know, they obviously knew the gospel. They, they probably grew up around Christian people or went to church even Awanas. Uh, but at one point, you know, they just fell on their knees and said, God, I surrender. I don't want to live like this anymore. And one person said she was a, uh, a nurse, go back years ago. She was witnessing to me. I wasn't a Christian back then. But she was the mom of a guy I knew. We had a, went on a motorcycle ride down to Louisiana. And this woman had a radical transformation experience. 
Now, she's tried to show me that you can be a Christian and still have some fun. Took me into the garage and showed me her 442 convertible. And on the bumper, it was a bumper that said, uh, warning, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. I'm like, what? what, what? What's that? <laughs> but she told me she had gotten divorced and she was a nurse and she was a partier. And one night after partying all night, she comes into her house, walked into her kitchen, fell to her knees and said, God, I can't live like this anymore. I give my life to you, Lord. She said, I stood up from that place a new person. I've never looked back. You know, Christians have these incredible testimonies, right? So unbelievers like to latch on to you guys because you give them hope. But the only hope we have is to give them Christ. It's not the experience that they need. They need the one who changes lives. That's the only experience that matters. But here's the problem. With people who come to church, again, they've gotten away from the old friends, bad habits, uh, drinking and smoking dope and drugs and whatever. They come to church. They hear the gospel. They hang around you guys. They're enlightened in the sense that they know the truth. They hear about Jesus. Doesn't mean they've accepted Christ, but they're listening. They're, they're hearing about him. Here's the problem. Once they know God's truth and then willingly turn from it, the end result is that they are in a worse place than before. Much worse. And that's what Jesus goes on to warn about in Matthew 12, verse 45. After this unclean spirit comes out of a man or a woman, he eventually comes back and finds that this person's heart is, yeah, clean, swept. Okay, there's been reformation, but it's empty. It's empty. And so he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. Now, Peter echoes that very thought in verses 20 to 22. Let's read it again. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ... They are again entangled in them and overcome. Listen, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness. And I'm, I'm assuming what Peter is talking about on the day of judgment. It would be better they'd have a lesser judgment in hell if they had never heard the truth than if they hear it and reject it because now they're accountable. They can't plead ignorance, okay? Verse 21, for it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, the gospel, to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and uh, a sow or a pig having washed to her wallowing in the mire. Here's what Peter is saying, very simple. The reason a dog eats its own vomit and a pig, even though it's been washed and cleaned up, returns to wallow in the mud hole is because, listen, that is the nature of dogs and pigs. That's his point, right? Okay, you live in a farm, and you have a pig on the farm, okay? And the pig loves to be out in that mud hole. It just rolls around, and it's in its snout, and it's all over its But it loves it. That's its environment, loves it, right? You decide that's a gross environment for this pig family pet to to live in so you take it out of the mud hole you bring it you, you you wash it off you know you clean it up maybe sprinkle a little perfume on it i guess i don't know <laughs> bring it into the house to live with you and the kids brand new environment first time you leave the door open that pig's gonna make a beeline for the mud hole 
Why? Because that's all it knows. That's its nature. The reason people who come to church for a while and stop doing some of the sinful things they used to do, but eventually return to the filth of the world is because, listen, that's their nature. These people experience some reformation, but stop short of genuine regeneration or salvation, which would have given them, listen, a new nature with new desires. Look, when we accepted Jesus into our hearts, we received a new nature. Second Peter 1 verse 4, uh, Peter tells us it was the nature of God. We received the divine nature. And as Paul the Apostle put it in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, old things passed away, all things became new. Now, I don't have to tell you guys, if you're a Christian here tonight, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because it was immediate. When I accepted Christ, immediately I knew some things had to change. I'm not saying everything that had a hold on me went immediately. But maybe out of the ten that really held, held a hold on me, Eight dropped by the wayside almost immediately. I stopped swearing. And I work with truck drivers, okay? I mean, I, I could cuss the wallpaper off that wall. As soon as I got saved, that God redeemed my vocabulary. I stopped smoking. I stopped doing a lot of stuff I don't want to even share. I'm not proud of. Now, was everything perfect? No, I, I still had issues. But boy, I knew something had happened. You know, something had happened. I was different. And you couple that with the, with the hunger for the Bible, which I'd never really had before. I couldn't get enough of it. I worked, as I told you before, I was uh, worked a midnight shift for an oil company in the area. And, and, and you know, I'd receive shipments of product from the refinery down in Juliet. And, uh, and I would load uh, gasoline trucks, uh, you know, 8,000-gallon uh, gasoline trucks that would come in. I'd load them up. They'd take them to the gas stations to dump the gas, right? Um, and for most of the night, after I did some initial stuff, I had most of the evening to myself as a kind of a night watchman thing. I bring my Bible and my cassette player. I'm dating myself, and all my Bible cassettes, right? And young people have never seen a cassette, and uh, you know, and or an album, right? <laughs> but I would bring my cassettes, and I would study all night long. I couldn't get enough of the Bible. That was a dramatic difference. I wanted to go to church. My wife and I, you know, she got saved right around the time I did. We started, we started going to church together. Uh, we started to, to, to invite friends over so we could share the gospel with them. Eventually it turned into a little home study that we, this was radically different from the way we used to live. Something dramatic happened. But if you don't experience true regeneration, you don't get a new nature. You don't get new desires. And um, you don't get the nature of God, right? And the evidence, again, is just immediate. Not only do you want to not do the sins you used to do, people say, I don't want to be a Christian. You guys can't have any fun. You can't party. You can't drink. You can't take drugs. You can't have sex outside of marriage. Well, uh, you know, that's not fun, okay? That, that was the, the fruit of a life of bondage. But the, the point is that it's not that I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying so hard not to do those things. So I just whoa, so want so badly to get out there and party again and drink and take drugs. I have no desire. Because when you get into nature, everything changes from the inside out. And now we want to go to church. We want to study the Bible. We want to praise the Lord, right, and pray and, and be with God's people. Guys, this is one of the most, if not the most powerful evidences whereby we know Jesus has come into our hearts, and that is that 
there, there's this change that takes place, all right? And um, we're going to have to stop, but um, come on back. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that we are new creations in Christ, that you uh, called us, pursued us, and brought us to our knees in brokenness and surrender. And we thank you for that, Lord, because our lives have never been the same and never will be the same. As we look back at the old life, we look back at a life of emptiness, a life of misery, of sadness, of hopelessness. And now we see as children of God, everything is reversed. We have great hope. We are filled with your spirit, with love. We have purpose, uh, a place reserved for us in heaven, Lord. It's only going to get better. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for redeeming us. And pray you give us grace to walk in that newness of life every day, that we'd be a light to those in darkness. So, Father, we ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.